This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. What's going on? How are you feeling? I'm getting there. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> I'm trying to ease back into work. So a couple more hours every day. Aren't we all trying to ease back into work? <laughs> Did you see the RailsConf schedule? I did. I'm speaking. Uh, I didn't see. I just looked at it like last night before I went to bed and just scanned for my name. So I'm saw. I'm speaking on um, the la- whatever the last day is, like right after lunch. Ooh, I think I'm okay. That sucks. I mean, like we talked about before. I think that I'm. I'm at a point now where I'm com- like. I think it'll be fine. It's not the when I'm prepared, the talk will not be hanging over me. It's it hangs over me when I'm trying to write the talk and prepare it. So sure. I'm not too worried about that part. Are you in not the keynote room at least? I didn't even pay attention. <laughs> ah. I have no idea. How about you? I am the second talk of the first day. Okay. I am awesome. in the keynote room. Okay. But so good time. And I don't know. Hopefully the room isn't too empty. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to be before Tessa's talk so I could plug her talk in my talk. And that is a thing that happened. So I'm happy about that. Oh, when is Tessa's talk? You can plug it right now. She's also on the first day. She is the fourth talk on the first day. That's good. Get it out of the way. So it sounds like uh, if we're going to record some podcasts, it'll probably be the second day. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So I don't know if you heard or not, but Rails is really rudimentary. Yeah, it's the uh, Fisher-Price of web frameworks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're getting a uh, Fisher-Price little uh, car for the Shopify office. (laughs) So uh, if you haven't heard, the uh, Rails Twitter was up in arms earlier this week an article came out in yeah and we're going to discuss vanity fair on the bike shed podcast (laughs) (laughs) an article came out in vanity fair entitled just an ass backward tech company how twitter lost the internet war and they spend a lot of time talking about twitter's harassment problems which i think probably well documented among people who are on twitter and listen to the show i'm sure So the choice thing that I keep seeing cited here is at the same time, her defenders say Harvey has been forced to clean up and Harvey is like the last name of the person who I think is responsible for cleaning this stuff up, I guess. She's yeah, she's the VP in charge of fixing Nazis on Twitter. So Harvey has been forced to clean up a mess that Twitter should have fixed years ago. Twitter's back end was initially built with Ruby on Rails, a rudimentary web application framework that made it nearly impossible to find a technical solution to the harassment problem. If Twitter's co-founders had known what it would become, a third former executive told me, you never would have built it on a Fisher-Price infrastructure. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in their defense, there is, you know, raise if trying to fix harassment in active records. So, yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of people that like I saw some good tweets of like, hey, if you really think this is the problem, then hire me at a consulting rate because it's not the problem and I'll fix it. (laughs) I can pretty much assure you that it's not Rails's fault that you can't do this. But I think that ultimately like this article was written by Maya Kossoff. I don't know what her name is. I don't know what her background is. I don't I'm sure she did lots of great reporting for it. And that's the impression that she got from the folks she was talking to. At the same time, I wonder, like, was she talking to people who were actually in engineering and that's what she heard? Or was she getting people complaining about the infrastructure and then like we get to remember the audience of this article is Vanity Fair, right? Right. So there's going to be some 
unsatisfactory to people who are really in the know glossing over of technical detail or details that are not familiar to most people who read Vanity Fair. So, Sure. Well, I mean, I'm assuming the statements that led to that, you know, were around when Twitter switched off of Rails, which, I mean, was a reasonable thing for them to do at the time. At the point where Twitter hit critical mass in terms of scale, they were uh, Rails was sort of at its wor- the worst point it ever had been performance-wise. And the best parts I saw, I thought the best tweets I saw were, but like there was one from James Edward Gray talking about like, hey, look where Rails took Twitter. (laughs) I wouldn't say that's a failure. That's like a huge success story, right? I mean, the fact that they've botched it since doesn't mean, and by botched, I mean botched this harassment thing. I think it's just, it's, it's, it is ludicrous to paint that on. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. we couldn't possibly plug anything in that, like, did any sort of sentiment analysis on these tweets to figure out, like, hey, is this a racist thing? <laughs> or, like, <laughs> is this abusive behavior? Or just handle people's actual complaints that are telling you, like, hey, this is an abusive tweet. <laughs> right. And handle them appropriately. I liked Aaron's tweet about it where he was just like, how on earth will I ever use this Turing complete language to solve a technical problem? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. I don't have much more to say about it. It was was an interesting article for other reasons, but that was certainly a fun thing to wake up to on, I think, a Monday morning is when that hit my Twitter stream. So that was fun. I am just curious because it definitely like the the quote in the article definitely implies that they were blaming the harassment problem on Rails, not scaling problems on Rails. And if that is actually what people were trying to get across i'm very curious what on earth other frameworks are doing for them (laughs) right i suspect that like i don't know a kind reading of it is more like we had to be so focused on keeping the service up that we weren't able to dedicate the time but like the amount of money and the size of the team like you can do two things like (laughs) yeah that's definitely a uh a parallelizable problem there yeah anyway whatever it was it was interesting i guess to read the article we'll link to it in the show notes if you haven't seen it yet what have you been working on? So I've got a couple things. First of all, one thing that should be quick is that I just saw Prem posted a blog post about this today, about a method that's coming to Rails 6, which is create or find by, which is different than find or create by. So create or find by does a create of a record, and then if it gets a not, if it gets a not unique exception, does a find immediately after, which I think is a pretty cool method. And it happened to come up like that, that article, like Prem happened to publish that blog post, like right after we were having a conversation with our client about like the differences between find to create by and doing something like this. And that, you know, this is a little more resilient to a race condition like that. But the, I think the confusing thing is that <laughs> now you have to remember what the difference between create or find by and find or create by. <laughs> is. Yeah. Cause they take the same, the same, the method signature is the same and all that stuff. So I don't know. It'll be interesting i guess to see i'm trying to think like originally i was like why didn't they just make find or create by behave like this but i guess well it'd be a backwards compatibility issue yeah because this has a, yeah. this requires your table to be set up the way that your table should be set up in the first place with a appropriate with a constraint, constraint on whatever you're expecting to conflict yeah which like if your database is the way your database should be there is no real difference between these I'm, i mean unless i guess i guess there's probably also somebody out there who's using find or create by on a thing that isn't unique yeah or isn't necessarily unique right where you're trying to say like find or create the first right yeah <laughs> exactly although i guess there's also first or create isn't there i don't know i can never keep track of which of these methods actually got deprecated and which of these methods did not somebody deprecated update attributes which i'm trying to kill not i'm trying to kill the deprecation of that method not trying to kill the method i think there's absolutely no good reason to deprecate it your fear just being that it creates noise for people when we could just as easily yeah. carry the alias along. Yeah, I mean, it's it's what we call soft deprecated. So like it's not referenced in documentation or guides or, you know, it's it, its existence is never mentioned officially. But if it's not a maintenance burden, why deprecate it? 
Yeah, I guess. And is it really just? Is it actually just implemented as an alias? It's yeah. It's literally just an alias. Yeah. I mean, it used to be that was the method, and update was an alias for update attributes, and then you know it was changed. The update was the real method, and update attributes was a soft deprecated alias. I guess the counter argument to not deprecating it to me would be that there are likely to be documentation and things like that out there that reference update attributes. And for people learning, it may be more confusing for them to see update attributes in some places. And, and I mean, use, it's never and referenced it. in our documentation. Right. But it could be, you know, you're reading a, an older book or a tutorial online or something like that, right? Sure. And instead of seeing a deprecation that tells you like, oh, okay, now this is update. It just works. And then a, you're and not going to see a deprecation though, right? After this next version, you're just, it's just going to not work. Right. My concern mostly was more around like somebody might see update attributes somewhere and then in some other context, see update and not understand that they're the same thing. Like, that's my general complaint with aliases in, as a whole, is like, why are there two names to do the same thing? That could potentially be more confusing. But that ignores the whole fact that, like, Rails has been around for a decade now. <laughs> There's old code, and do we really want to have this deprecation everywhere? So I think I'd be okay with either, but I can definitely see your point of, this isn't a maintenance burden, let's just keep this alias line here forever, it'll be totally fine. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, I don't mind aliases if it's reasonably obvious, especially if you can just document that's an alias. What are your feelings on inject and reduce? I mean, I I I don't like the small talk names in general. The small talk names are the are the act ones, right? Inject, yeah. collect, select, reduce, filter. There's one that that's like missing. I know filter not is missing. Is filter in Ruby? Let's see. It's not, right? I think it is. I don't know. No, it's not. There's yeah, CSV no, so filter. It's select and, and then what's the other one? Reject. What's, no, I mean, isn't there another name for select though? Oh, uh, how do you see that in the documentation? I feel like keep if keep if is the other name. Oh, okay. But yeah, so normally that's called you know in every other language that's called filter and then reject is called filter not. Mm -hmm. I strongly prefer the names that match every language except Smalltalk as opposed to, versus the name that was in Smalltalk. Right, and also just reduce seems to make much more sense than inject. Just as like, yeah. I guess inject uh, like inject was just like hey we want all the I, I think there is a story of like they just really wanted all the names to end in act uh, so there was reject collect select and whatever else I'm missing well and isn't reduce technically wrong too because reduce is when there's no initial value given and then fold is when you give it initial value oh, I didn't know that what would you reduce into if there was no if the list itself contains less than one value it returns nothing oh okay and then it you know it calls it with the first and second value in the array Okay. Huh. I didn't know that distinction, but that's helpful because I, didn't, I never really understood the difference between fold and reduce. <laughs> yeah. If right. I'm remembering correctly, I'm pretty sure that's the difference. Sure. We'll go with it. Let's see. What else have I been doing? Oh, I wrote some Elm. Oh, fun. Yeah. So the client project I'm on right now is a Rails API with an Elm front end. And for a long time, I was able to just kind of get along by making changes in Rails. And then a change came along that was like, hey, this form on the front end, it's a dropdown field. We need to split it into two dropdown fields that have slightly different semantics. And so there's going to be backend changes, obviously, to support this. And then there's we're obviously going to need to change the front end to do it. And so I was like, cool, I'm excited to grab this. So I had a pair. It's Chris Toomey, who's also on this project with me, and we paired on it. And it was awesome to do the Elm code, actually. Like, it was really great to, like, it's probably my first client work. I guess it's my first client work shipped in a strongly typed language like that. I you know I've, I've worked on investment projects like this before. I never, I don't know if I've done much Elm, 
but as you say like it was just like okay where should we start this refactor i was like oh it doesn't really matter let's just start here and then like we would guess what we would need to do next but while we were guessing the compiler was just like nope this other thing you didn't think about like oh yeah i didn't think about that and just following that all the way through and it, it turned out to be like quite the shotgun surgery because it was kind of a wide-reaching change but mm-hmm. it was entirely guided by the compiler and i think there was one change that like when we got done where it compiled but it wasn't correct but it was fine you know like we figured it out and was like okay and we had test coverage on it so it was like great okay why isn't this working now oh we forgot to i forget what it was exactly but it was a small textual change we made obviously it's textual they're all textual and uh, (laughs) a small change we made and everything started working which was pretty awesome but then contrasted with like when we had to make the corresponding changes in ruby it was really weird to go from the seam where you have this nice safety net to this area where you don't like grab just the dissonance between the approaches that you have to take when like oh now i'm editing an elm file versus now i'm editing a rails file and they're in the same project in this case and like there's no there's no project context switch it's just like a what type of file is this context switch Mm -hmm. and like you could you could i guess you could make the same argument for java when you're doing javascript in ruby in the same file or in the same project but like those have the same guarantees which is basically none uh (laughs) and so it was really confusing to be at the seams of like oh how do they hand the data off again and like which side is wrong here and then also just like when i needed to make the changes in ruby and being like oh that's just a like the word hospital appeared a bunch in this change and the number of times we we misspelled it like three different ways and it's (laughs) one of those words where like if you look at it spelled out like all of the shapes are north south like they're up and down so it's like Mm -hmm. it's really easy to miss interposing some letters (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so we did that a bunch and just every time it was like why isn't this working i don't understand and then we would like in vim hit the star key on a word which highlights it and be like oh it's only highlighting this instance oh because we misspelled this instance <laughs> but like that's the kind of thing that the compiler would tell us right off the bat and it would even tell us like did you mean hospital and be like oh yes i did mean hospital okay done which i guess you know if i had been using method calls rather than like symbol keys on a, a hash i would have gotten that out of ruby potentially as well although in a yeah a significantly less pleasant way to read than in the in the elm compiler i'm excited like it was like you know it was an established code base, which I always find the easiest. Like, if you're going to get started with the language, I always find it much easier to make a change to something that exists than it is to like start a thing from scratch. For I think fairly obvious reasons, or at least fairly obvious to me. And so to be able to just say like, oh, okay, this thing that's one select box, we want to make it two, and we want to like split the data that's out in those select boxes into two select boxes. And it turned out mm-hmm. to be like in the Elm architecture, like the fact that there is a way to write Elm and there is a way to lay out the Elm Elm code kind of makes it easy to guess where you're going to find various things like oh this seems like the kind of thing that would come from the model and like sure enough yep there's the model and it's right there and like okay now i probably need to go to the view and do this other thing was very nice as opposed to some other languages where it's a little bit more like the wild wild west like i think in the past dhh has said that one of the things that he likes the best he likes best about rails is it gives you a place for things Mm -hmm. and i think there's a lot of value in that and elm elm has you know the elm architecture which kind of has this I guess the the term that I've heard from I heard from somebody I was actually interviewing for for a job here was that it has an emergent architecture like just a way that you're supposed to write it versus other languages like Scala that don't necessarily have that there's like a million ways to write Scala code and each place that does it does it drastically different depending on how functional they want to be right not too dissimilar actually from like how do you structure a react project 
I don't right. know, like there's still emerging conventions on there, but the language or framework itself doesn't guide you in any particular way. Well, Elm wasn't always that way, right? The Elm architecture came out just because that was the way people it emerged. Was yeah. most pleasant <laughs> to, to, to write Elm. I mean, it's basically, it's very similar to Redux, isn't it? I don't know. I haven't done much Redux, but sure. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm obviously not an expert on Elm architecture having made, you know, one commit on this project. I can only say that like it was, it was fairly obvious to me where things would live. Sure. And how to go about making the change, which was nice. I've been quite fond of Elm every time I've seen it, just because it's it's one of the functional languages that seems to have escaped the culture of over-abstracting everything. Yes, and then I, I would also say, like, over... Maybe this is the same thing, but, like, over-academicize... Over-academicizing? Academicizing? Sure. Right. I mean, I think that the academic naming of, of things kind of falls out of the... Uh, well, we wanted to abstract, you know, we wanted to abstract this concept that is that is so far removed from how it's used that there's no real name we could give it that maps to like what you do with it. Let's just pick a math name instead. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's certainly far less. I mean, I did ask a couple questions on the code I posted and then got some responses from people who are more familiar with Elm that made me go like, I don't have any idea what you just told me, so I'm going to ignore it and continue. <laughs> they were like more, had more to do with like parameterized types and like, oh, if you wanted to do that, you would need it. Like, I forget what I wanted to do, but then the response was like, if you wanted to do that, you would really need to have a parameterized type system. And I was like, do I? I don't like, <laughs> I don't know enough right now to answer that question, honestly. But it was, it definitely made me want to do more of it. And it made me kind of feel good about where we are, as least, at least in the ThoughtBot Boston office. Like, it was really only a matter of time before I ended up on a project that used Elm because we've been using it more and more. A lot of our projects, either at client request or because we were able to make a good case for it for a particular project. Yeah, I think we're going to be using a lot more of it. And I'm excited about that. Nice. How about you? What's going on? Easing back into work. Yeah, I mean, so I I guess people probably don't know this. I took a really bad fall a couple of weeks ago and ended up with a moderate concussion. I've been recovering from that, and this is my first week kind of back to work, and they told me to take it slow and start, you know, with a few hours a day and then a few hours more. So I have not been doing nearly as much as I normally would. I've been writing a closed-loop guidance system for a Kerbal Space Program based on the shuttle's guidance program, which has been fun. Hold on, I want to back up for a second because I've been in the... Then we can get to your Kerbal Space Program application. <laughs> okay. I have been in the situation where you have a head injury and I can definitely empathize with, with that. So I got in a bike accident years ago and uh, I was on vacation. We came back and I went to the hospital and I was like, you know, my head, I don't... Like they were just completely unconcerned with the fact that like in the immediate aftermath, I was having trouble remembering various things and... And they were more concerned with my shoulder, which I also hurt, but not, I didn't break anything luckily. And so I came back and I think the very next day I was supposed to return to work. So I went back to work and I found myself like completely unable to focus, like yep. just like staring at the computer screen and being like, okay, I need to work on this issue. And then I would start working on it. And two seconds later, I'd be like, I think I gotta go take a walk. And I would go take a walk and I'd come back and I'd be like, okay, what was I doing? Oh, I was working on this issue. Okay. So certainly have a lot of empathy for that. So I hope that that's going well for you and you're getting better. Yeah, for me, it's been language that's been really hard. Like, I tended to forget words a lot before <laughs> I hit my head and it got a lot worse. And, you know, it's still <laughs> case in point. Yeah, I'm still having trouble remembering how to say the things that I want to. Uh, and they say it could be months before I'm fully recovered. 
Interesting. I remember when I started, when I you know came back to work and stuff, I would be having text chats with a friend of mine, and he teases me because he's 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 like, you, what are those words called that sound the same but are spelled differently? Homonyms, homophones, one of those. I- something like homonyms anyway i would always get those right because i was always careful about it like there there and there right i would always make sure i'd always get those right and he was he immediately was like you get those wrong now what (laughs) and so he thinks it's he surmises that it's my concussion i think i'm probably just more lazy than i used to be but who knows could be i'll blame it on the concussion it's a good story yeah so just this weekend i wanted to try easing back into doing programming things so that i could you know work on monday Forgetting that Monday was a holiday both in the U.S. and in parts of Canada, so Tuesday. I've always been really annoyed that the uh, autopilot mods for Kerbal Space Program that exist don't do the things that I want. Like, they don't handle realistic rockets at all. They always expect that if your thrust changes, other than just from as a result of burning fuel, it is always through an explicit stage what's known as either serial or parallel staging where but basically where a large segment of the of the rocket you know detaches and it always just assumes that any engine that has fuel will burn until there is no more fuel left for it to burn and then you'll and then you'll stage but that's not how most well even not, most isn't right but that's not how many rockets in the real world work you know the most famous would probably be the Saturn V the rocket that put men on the moon where on both its first and second stage both of those had five engines and the center engine would not burn as long as the others. On the first stage, the center engine would shut down to keep the G-forces under 5 Gs, and then the second stage would ignite, and then its center engine would shut down to keep the G-forces under 5 Gs, and then it would also change its fuel-to-oxidizer ratio to lower the thrust to keep the G-forces under 5 Gs. But probably the most flown rocket that did something that doesn't fit into just the standard staging model would be the Atlas rocket, where it had a large central core, and it would have five engines attached to it. One was called the sustainer, two were the boosters, and two were the verniers. Verniers would give it, would, were just little tiny engines that didn't burn much fuel, but they would give roll control. And what it would do is they would all be feeding from the same fuel tank, and then at about two to two and a half minutes, depending on which atlas it was, the boosters would just drop away. So you would was traditional stage, sort of, in that you just had mass that was leaving the rocket, but it was just dropping the engines. And there was, you know, plenty of fuel. There's plenty of fuel left in the tank. The the center engine, which burns significantly less fuel than the boosters, would, would keep going for another three to four minutes after that. But anyway, so none of these mods could, could handle it. And then they also couldn't do things like launch into the ecliptic plane, which is the orbit of the Earth around the sun, which is where you want to launch into if you're going to another planet. Okay. So I decided to try writing my own my own guidance system. As just a little fun side project. And the space shuttle has a really, really well-documented closed-loop guidance system. And so closed-loop means just that the the guidance system feeds back into itself. So it takes the actual speed and position of the rocket as an input, as opposed to an open-loop. And in fact, this is an open-loop guidance system for the first two minutes. An open-loop guidance system just does a thing. And regardless of whether the results of doing that thing were what you expected or not, it will continue to do it. So the reason I do this is because none of this math really works in the atmosphere. So I use an open uh, loop guidance system. I go straight up until the rocket reaches a certain speed. During that time, I roll to so that I'm pointing at the right direction. And then I pitch over a certain number of degrees, usually five, but it depends on the thrust of the vehicle. And then wait until my velocity vector catches up to where the nose is pointed. And then I just do nothing for about two minutes. 
and let it follow its velocity vector. It's called a gravity turn is the actual name for it. And then after two minutes, it, then the guidance kicks in and says, okay, now how do I need to adjust this to get into the actual orbit I want to be in? But so that's an open loop and then closed. And so closed loop then looks at how fast am I actually going and how do I, how do I adjust and correct for this? And it's mostly at that once at this point, it's mostly just figuring out a bunch of math that I don't fully understand, but you don't necessarily need to understand what a mathematical formula is doing to translate it to code. Right. This is a game that you're playing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> this seems really, really involved. So for folks, I think we've talked about this on the show a, a bunch of times before, but basically like for the most part, this is just a game that you can point and click and play, right? Like if you yeah. wanted to download the thing, but then it's scriptable to the point where you can write Ruby or other programs to plug into it to like override various parts that you would get from like if you picked off you know some rocket boosters to put on your rocket you can override the guidance system on them i'm guessing no so the game itself doesn't have any of that stuff there's a mod that that enables this the game is written in unity so like whether they want mods or not they have mods and so somebody wrote a mod called kos which actually comes with its own language but it can also listen for commands on a uh, tcp port so then you can, that's, I believe that's how the Ruby version works is it just connects to the game basically acts as a server and then the Ruby script, you know, communicates with it versus writing, embedding Ruby directly in it. It's not actually a C compiler, but there's a C like language that compiles down to this language has also has its, its own bytecode. And there's a C, uh, there's a C like compiler that compiles down to, I've been, I've actually been tempted to try making an LLVM backend for it so that, uh, <laughs> you could write actual C or rust or any, or Swift or anything else that compiles with LLVM. Mm-hmm. I haven't looked into what it would take to do that. <laughs> but so, so the game itself is dramatically different than, than the, doesn't have any of the problems I'm talking about because it has a world where everything is one tenth the scale. Interestingly, like gravity is the same as earth, but the planet itself is one tenth the size. So it's, you know, a hypothetical, incredibly dense planet. But that also means just that getting to orbit is extremely easy compared to the real world. Because orbital velocity in the base game, if I remember correctly, is 2.4 kilometers per second versus 7.8 kilometers per second in the real world. And then engines just do a bunch of things that real world engines don't. Like every engine can be shut down and turned and restarted infinitely. They can throttle down to 1% of their thrust. They have obscenely high thrust weight ratios. And, just, and, and in the real world, like, some engines do throttle in the year 2018. It is much more common than it was as opposed to the 60s where basically no engines throttled. Most engines can only be ignited once. Anyway, so there's a, a suite of mods that you can get called Realism Overhaul, which number one replaces you know the Kerbal universe with just the real solar system and then also pr- provides realistic engines that have all of the characteristics of real world engines. And that's usually what I play with. Uh, so it's like playing on hard mode. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's dramatically it, it's funny like it's a game that takes a, a lot of learning no matter what you know people talk about like they play it for a month and get to the moon or even just first get into orbit and then it was like when you first switched from the base game to realism overhaul you have to unlearn so much and then yeah it's it takes so long to even just to learn how to get into orbit again well so this is what you're kind of warming back up into is <laughs> building some building some guidance computers. How'd your guidance system go? It works pretty well. It, it's a little twitchy on roll control right now. I have to I have to manually input way more than I want to. And I'm still trying to work out how to make it work with engines that actually shut down where the mass doesn't change and, and mostly just like how to adjust the delta V calculations. Because the thing basically has to predict the future based on here's what your thrust is, here's how it's going to increase, here's how here's how much faster you're going to be going at the next time that something needs to take over. But it works. It works. It's, it's surprisingly easy to get something like this working. 
it's not quite as accurate as I'd like. Like I try, I always try and launch into a 185 kilometer circular parking orbit, and it usually ends up putting me into like a 180 by 190, which I'd like to fix. But it gets inclinations really, really well, which is good. Cool. But again, like none of that's because of anything clever I did. That's because they used really good math for the space shuttle. <laughs> and so you're just re-implementing it, basically. Yeah, I'm. I'm literally just re-implementing like their formulas. So when you say really well documented, you mean like you can basically just go online and find how these things worked? Yeah. Awesome. That's pretty Which cool. Which is, you know, much more useful. I, I don't know if you can actually get the source code for them, but just having documentation of how it worked for the mathematical portions is much, much more useful than if the source code were available. Cool. Yeah, I, I the, the game part interests me. I don't know if so much the <laughs> I don't see I, can, I don't know if I can see myself reading through a technical manual and uh, re-implementing a guidance computer, but I can certainly see the appeal to it if that's what you're into. So, <laughs> I mean, you can also just fly them by hand. You don't have to have you know you don't have to write a guidance computer. Right. All right. Should we wrap up? Sure. Okay. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm/slash one forty four. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.